Good morning. My name is Nick, one of the pastors here. It's so good to see you. Now, rumor has it, Dr. David Olshine is in the house. Where are you at? There he is. He's here with some students uh, from Columbia International University from my alma mater. Can we all say hi to them? Yeah. Welcome here. Yeah. Are we, are we the Rams or the Cougars now? I keep changing our mind. Rams. Okay. Listen to everything this man has to say to you. Seriously. Unless it has something to do with him taking, you taking him out to lunch. Don't pay attention to that. No, but he's changed my life. He's my rabbi. Thank you for everything, Dr. David Olshine. I owe everything, everything to you. Y'all ready to hear a sermon this morning? No, I'm serious. Like, hopefully by now, you're starting to get the sense that I need to know you're out there. I need you to make some noise, right? And this room, man, this room's got some great acoustics, which means you guys have to try. You have to make some effort so that I can hear you, okay? So help me out. And I, I know you're like me, you're probably super excited about the game this afternoon, Gamecock fans, where you at? Come on now. Yeah. I am so excited too. I'm thrilled to death. But this morning, I want to talk to you about something that actually matters. Right? It's a big game. It's awesome. But once it's over, whether we win or lose, life's going to be life. This morning, I want to share, share with you the words of life. And I believe that if you hear this, I mean, you really hear it, if you take it to heart, change everything. Change you, change the world around you. Who wants some of that? Yeah? There you go. Okay, somebody's starting to get the hang of it. Yes! I'm going to train y'all. I'm going to brainwash you. We are in the midst of a series we're calling The Way, right? And we're, we're journeying through, we're making our way through this really interesting passage. It's a huge passage of scripture in the Gospel of Luke. It runs from chapter 9 to chapter 19, and essentially it follows Jesus, his journey to Jerusalem, and essentially his journey to the cross. And we established this the first week that Luke, the author, not, not only wants us to read this as Jesus' journey to the cross, but he wants, it, wants us to read it as our own journey to the cross as well. I mean, central to what it means to be a disciple, right, is this invitation that Jesus has extended to all of us. If you're going to follow me, if you're going to be my disciple, you must take up your cross daily. Right? So the cross on the one hand is, is a historical event. Maybe the most important historical event that has ever happened. But at the same time, the cross is also a way of life. And so the question we've been wrestling with all throughout this series is, what does it mean to not only place our trust in the cross, but what does it mean for us to embrace the way of the cross? This essentially is what the season of Lent is all about. How y'all doing with your fasts, by the way? Who gave up coffee, caffeine? Raise your hand. Let me see you. Look around the room, people. Stay away from them. They're unstable, right? Remember, Sundays, though, you can break your fast. So do us all a favor. Get you a cup of coffee, right? Enjoy it. It's great. Now, but some of, what some of us do during the season of Lent is we intentionally say no to something, right? We give up good things in order to really focus on the best thing, God's healing presence, God's redemptive work in our lives, because it's so easy for us to settle for less, isn't it? And so for the six weeks leading up to Easter, we enter into a time of self-reflection, a time of introspection, confession, repentance, so that that resurrected life we all long for can become more and more of a reality in us and through us. Now, this morning's passage leads us into an encounter with a guy named Zacchaeus. Have you heard of this guy? Yes? Yeah. Apparently, there's some sort of song about him. 
This, I'm honest, moment of confession. I don't know this song. I'm serious. Yeah, like, oh. I, I don't know this song. I've never heard this song before. Like, my wife tried singing a bit of it to me. I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Like, apparently I missed this in Sunday school class. I'm on the outside looking in. My kids know this song. I don't know this song. And so here's what I want you all to do. Can you do me a favor? If you know this song, I want you to sing it for me. We all sing the Zacchaeus song for me? Come on. We're going to have a moment together, right? This will be great. In fact, you know what? I'm not going to preach anything else until you sing the song. Some of you are like, yes, we're getting out of here, right? Lock the doors. I'm going to count to three. And if you know the song, sing the song for me. You ready? One, two, three. Wow. Come on. Yeah. Feeling a little fuzzy right about now, huh? You can stop there. That was great. Give yourselves a round of applause. Yeah. We got no business having a choir in here. <laughs> Just kidding. Let's get into the text. What do you say? So, chapter 19, we have Jesus entering the city of Jericho, right? Now, we, we remember from chapter 9, we're told that he's on his way to Jerusalem. He's been headed to Jerusalem the entire time, all the way from chapter 9. It says he set his face towards Jerusalem. He's just taking his sweet time getting there. Right now, here he is in chapter 19, finally entering the city of Jericho, which means he's close. He's really close. In fact, by the end of this chapter, Jesus is going to be coming in to the city of Jerusalem. But when he gets to Jericho, people go nuts. Right? There's all this sort of, there's this buzz. There's this electricity. And so when Jesus comes into the city, all these people come out to see this Jesus they've heard so much about. And this is when we meet this Zacchaeus guy. Right? And we're told that he was a chief tax collector. Essentially, he's a crook. Now, I know we all have our, our own feelings about those beautiful, wonderful people who work for the IRS, yeah? But in the, in the first century, maybe in the city of Jericho, during the time of Jesus, Zacchaeus probably was the most despised person in the entire city. It was a big city, right? During Jesus' day, Israel was, was under Roman rule, Roman oppression, and the Romans loved them some taxes, and they taxed you for everything, which made it hard enough for the people already. But then the tax collectors made it even more difficult. And more often than not, they were, they were fellow Jewish people who were working for the Romans, which made them traitors in the eyes of their countrymen. And then they would make their living by charging more than the actual tax was for. Right? So they would charge more than what the Romans were asking for in the tax. They would give the Romans their share and they would keep the rest. Right? So essentially, they, they were extortionists. And now Zacchaeus, he was a chief tax collector, which meant he had a whole bunch of crooks working for him. And he sat at the top of the collection pyramid. Y'all thinking like Bernie Madoff. Tell me, how, how do Americans feel about Bernie Madoff? Don't use any cuss words. Right? You're in church. But you get the sense, right? This is how the people would have felt about Zacchaeus, one of the most despised people in the entire city. Right now, Luke also tells us he was wealthy. You know what that means? He was good at this. He was good at it. And I have to imagine that as the people watched him walk around in his nice, fancy clothes, right? And as they saw like new additions going on to his villa, his home, what, what are they thinking? With whose money is he doing all this with? Theirs. 
Are you starting to feel this a little bit? Nobody likes Zacchaeus. Nobody likes Zacchaeus. Now, not only that, but Luke also tells us that he was short, right? A wee little man. I love that part of the song. Who says that anymore? I'm going to start. Such a wee little man. Now, in the ancient world, this means that he probably was under five feet tall, right? So I'm picturing like Danny DeVito here. You got this in your mind? You got Zacchaeus, Bernie DeVito? That's what we're talking about, right? Zacchaeus, he's short. He can't see over the crowd. And so he gets the bright idea. He runs ahead and he climbs up this sycamore tree, which is really more like a big, broad bush, right? Just, I love this image in my head. Right? Zacchaeus, Bernie Madoff, hanging out in a bush, trying to get a picture of Jesus. Now let's read what happens next. Verse five, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Verse seven, all the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Let's just leave verse seven up there for a moment. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Man, the people had a hard time with this. And you can imagine why, right? Why would Jesus go and invite himself over for dinner at this guy's house? I mean, for one thing, you don't invite yourself over in the first century. I said, I don't care how important you think you are. You didn't do that. Jesus is doing it. And he's doing it with somebody that nobody wanted to spend time with. Zacchaeus? I mean, this is shocking even by Luke's standards, especially by Luke's standards. You read through the gospel, Jesus' interactions with the wealthy, they don't go so well. They usually result in somebody walking off sad, disappointed, frustrated. They didn't go so well. I mean, Luke works, works really hard all throughout the gospel, up until 19 chapters, he works really hard to show Jesus that he takes side with the poor. He takes side with the lame. He takes side with the downtrodden, with the oppressed. And now here in chapter 19, Luke is going to dinner with the oppressor. What? I mean, right from the beginning, we can see that this encounter with Zacchaeus, it's not going to stick to all the categories and labels and sides that you and I love to use to divide our world up. Between the good and the bad, the righteous and the unrighteous, the ones who deserve to be saved, the ones who deserve mercy, and the ones who deserve to be punished. Right away, this story is not going to pay any attention to that. See, the way of Jesus, the way of the cross is open to everyone. Y'all might want to write that down. The way of the cross, the way of Jesus is open to everyone. It pays no attention to our sides, our labels, our overly simplistic categories of who we think the good guys are and the bad guys are. See, God's grace doesn't pay any attention to that because here's the deal. God's grace doesn't play by our rules. Thank you, Jesus. It's like in Joshua chapter 5, Old Testament book. The people have been wandering in the wilderness, and they're about to come into the promised land. But the promised land, of course, is, you know, all sorts of different groups are living there. And so they're coming in to begin to drive them out. And Joshua, before this happens, has an encounter with an angel who we're told is the commander of the armies of the Lord. 
And the question that Joshua asks his angel, he says, are you for us? Or are you for our enemies? I love his answer. Neither. Hmm. Anne Lamont, she's an author, and she says it like this. You can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. Hmm. Ouch. God's grace doesn't play by our rules. When I was living in Ohio, I served as a, a pastor of record for a man who was on death row. And it's real interesting how this relationship got set up, but our, our relationship began through, through letter writing. I'd write him letters, he'd write me back. And after a couple of months of this, he actually asked me if I would come and visit him in person. It's kind of like, I don't know about that. Now, up to this point, nobody had told me what he did to be, to be put on death row. And I decided, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drive and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go spend some time with this guy. And the morning before I drove there, I got on Google. I looked his name up to get a sense of what had happened. And I wish I hadn't. It was awful. I mean, it's brutal to imagine that somebody was capable of doing the things that he had done. And then, of course, I got to drive two hours, right? And the whole time, my, my mind's just spinning. Like, what's this going to be like to sit across from a table from a guy like this, right? Then you pull up to the prison, and it's really, the whole experience was really unsettling. It, it looked like Shawshank Redemption. Y'all been there? You ever seen a movie before? It looked just like that place, right? And I pull up in the parking lot, and, and even just the process of getting into the prison was, was just really unnerving. You had to go through all these different barbed wire fences, to finally get to this one, this one little place where I came in during a shift change, so all these guards were coming out while all these other guards were going, all this commotion, right? And I have to walk through like five different metal detectors. Then they finally let me come into the prison. And the whole time, I'll be honest, this is one of the few places where it just felt like God wasn't there. And I'd go through layer after layer, gate after gate, and it felt like God was getting farther and farther away. You ever had one of those experiences? And finally, I, I get to this one place where they, they walk me into this little room, they, they lock the door behind me, and a guy comes over the intercom and says, okay, you're on your own here, we'll be, we'll be watching from a video. I was like, what? <laughs> so I walk into this room, this big open room, and there's this man chained to a table. And I go and I sit down across from him. And again, it was one of those places where God felt so far away. Until I looked into that guy's face. I have never met somebody in my life who knows peace the way Ray knew peace. I mean, this guy had committed some awful crimes. He'd come to terms with them. Somehow he had managed, he had managed to embrace the saving love of Jesus Christ. It transformed him. I mean, the, the peace this guy had, it was like physically evident. You could see it coming from his face. You could feel it in the room around you. This guy knew Jesus. He knew Jesus. He knew peace. It's funny, the whole time I thought I was leaving Jesus out in the parking lot. Funny thing, Jesus was waiting for me right there in the belly of that prison in the face of a man who'd been transformed by the outrageous grace of God. See, God's grace doesn't play by our rules. It jumps over all of our lines, all of our sides, all of our categories, and it extends itself to the people that we least expect it to. And my question for you this morning, 
If there's somebody that you've labeled as an enemy, maybe it's a whole group of people. You've placed them in a hole, right? You've drawn a line in the sand. You've put them on one side and you put yourself on the other. What would it look like for you to extend to them grace? To let them out of that hole, to get rid of that line, to offer them grace. C.S. Lewis once said, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Referring to the fact that every single person you meet has been made in the image of God, which makes them unbelievably valuable. I just wonder how much would change in our world. Y'all thinking about the same world I'm thinking about, right? How much would change if we could learn to just do this, to just look at everybody through that lens? Where we see them first and foremost, not as a Republican, not as a Democrat, not as somebody who has a different ideology than me, a different religion than me, different, different life practice than me, but we look at them first and foremost through the lens of somebody who is worth the Son of God dying for. You tell me how much would change if we would just start there. Are y'all with me? God's grace doesn't play by our rules. It jumps over all of our lines, all of our sides, all of our categories, all of our overly simplistic black and white thinking of who's the enemy and who's the good guy. All of us need the grace of God. You're aware of that, right? Amen. And I'm just thankful there's plenty to go around. Who do you need to offer grace to? Now, not only should this influence and change the way that we see other people, it should also influence and change the way that we see ourselves because there's plenty of us in this room, that person that we've, we've labeled as a lost cause. It's that person that we see looking back at us in the mirror. And God's grace doesn't play by our rules, which means that in God's economy, there's no such thing as a lost cause. You have to wonder if Zacchaeus felt this way, right? How do people feel about him? How do you think he felt about himself? Wealthy, powerful people don't climb up a tree unless they're desperate. He's desperate. Thing is, you know, he, he wanted to see Jesus. He didn't want Jesus to see him. I wonder how many of y'all feel like that in the room today. It's God's grace. doesn't play by our rules. doesn't pay attention to any of this stuff. This is the God that Jesus, that Jesus reveals to us. It's a God who doesn't wait for us to get our act together. It's a God who invites himself over for dinner. It's a God who comes knocking on our door. This is the kind of God that's revealed to us in Jesus Christ. This is some good news. This is some good news. This is what United Methodists is what we call provenient grace. You know what that means? It means since the day you were born, Jesus Christ has been chasing you down. He's been pursuing you and all of your rebellion and all of your resistance. God has unloaded the resources of heaven chasing you down wooing you back into relationship with him. And so we may be a million miles from God in our hearts and our minds, but here's the honest to goodness truth. God's never far from us. Never far from us. And earlier in Luke, Jesus paints this picture of the kind of God, it's a woman who loses one, one coin out of a hundred. She tears her house apart looking for that one lost coin. It's a shepherd. He's got a hundred sheep, loses one of them. Leaves them there and goes, looks for that lost one. It's the kind of God who chases us down. My question for you is, is how do you tend to respond when you blow it? When you fall short? When you mess up? Do you run towards God or do you run away from God? I mean, more often than not, what we do is we allow guilt 
and shame to keep us from the very place we need to be at the dinner table with Jesus. God's grace chases us down and finds us in all the ways we find ourselves up a tree. Grace meets us there in that place. And here's the beautiful part. Grace doesn't leave us there. See, the way of Jesus, it's open to everybody, but it's also an invitation to head in a completely different direction. Let's take a look back at Luke chapter 19, verse 7. You still out there? Maybe elbow your neighbor, throat punch him or something. Verse 7, just kidding, don't do that. Look back, verse 7. All the people saw this and began to mutter. He is gone to be the guest of a sinner. Verse 8, listen to this. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look here, and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. We're not sure what happened here, right? We don't even know if like Jesus made it into his house. I mean, did, did they spend time together around a meal? We don't even know. It could have been immediate, it could have been instant, but right there in front of everybody. Zacchaeus responds. He says, listen, I'm going to give half of what I got right now. I'm going to give it away to the poor, right? And if I've cheated anybody, which I'm sure the people are listening are like, if, I will pay back four times the amount, four times the amount. Now the law only required Zacchaeus to pay back 20% interest of what he took. That's all he had to do according to the law. Pay back what you stole and then put 20% on top of that. You're good to go. Zacchaeus, uh, four times the amount. You want to know why? Because Zacchaeus isn't jumping through some sort of hoop here. He's not checking off some sort of religious box. You know what he's doing? He's responding to the outrageous grace of God. This is what grace does, y'all. Grace means to change us. It means to change us, to set us right. That's his goal. Not to leave, it, leave us where it found us but to actually change us. Now, I'm, I'm learning something about you and I and how we relate to God from a five-year-old. Some of y'all know Rowan. He's our oldest, five-year-old son. And Rowan's favorite word right now is sorry. Seriously, he uses it all the time. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Dad. I'm sorry, Dad. He's got two younger sisters who he loves to bother. He loves to torment them, right? And, and right now, he's, he's got this blanket, right? He's had it since he was a kid. It was actually his mom's blanket before him when she was little. So it's kind of a fam family heirloom and it's nasty. He's like lioness, right? I mean, his blanket is gross. We've washed it a hundred times. It's still gross, but he loves it. He carries it around everywhere, but he's learned to use it as a whip. And he's lethal with it. I mean, pow, you know, he, he can get a good snap on it. And so he'll like whip his sister. I'm like, Rowan, he'll be like, dad, I'm sorry, dad. I'm sorry, dad. I'm sorry, dad. I'm sorry. But here's what I'm realizing about him. Sorry for Rowan has very little to do with his behavior. Sorry is more about him trying to deal with dad's emotions, right? With how dad's feeling about him in the moment. Because here's what I've noticed. He'll tell me, dad, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, dad, right? Five minutes later, what is he doing? He's whipping him again. Right? So whatever, he, he thinks he's pulling a fast one on me, right? Sorry to him is this way of trying to manipulate. He thinks I'm dumb. All I got to do is say I'm Sorry. Then I can do it again, right? He thinks he's outsmarting me. For him, sorry has very little to do with his behavior, and it's really about him trying to manipulate my feelings, my emotions. He doesn't want me to be frustrated at him. Hmm. It's funny, like every religious system, if you look in it, has this sort of scheme 
this way in which we try to outsmart God. It's like us Protestants, we, we love to give the Catholics a hard time for theirs. Confession, right? So you have to go to this priest after you mess up, the special person, you confess your sins to them and then they give you some sort of prescription, you go and do that and you're good, you're fine, go on about your business, right? We give them a hard time for that. Funny thing is about 8600 is when confession began, actually became a thing, 600 AD, 600 AD. Back then, you weren't allowed to confess the same sin twice because the assumption was you weren't gonna do it anymore, right? And we love to give our Catholic brothers and sisters a hard time for that, but we Protestants, we got a similar thing going. How many of us are taught when you're a kid, here's what you got to do every night before you go to bed, just get on your knees, right? And just, you don't need a priest. You just tell God, you and God, tell him about all the things you've done, all the sins, confess them to him. And here's what's going to happen. God's going to take like your sin bucket. He's going to dump it out, right? He's going to actually forget about it. This comes from a verse that often gets taken way out of context that, that he's going to actually forget about what you did. And so tomorrow when you wake up and you do it again, don't worry because to God it's going to be like the first time you did it. We think we're outsmarting God. We think God's dumb. God's not dumb. You're not going to outsmart God. He's not going to forget about your sin because I got, I got news for you. Your mom or your friend or your sister's not going to let God forget about your sin. They're going to keep bringing it up over and over and over again, right? God doesn't forget about your sin. God doesn't hold it against you. There's a difference there. But the thing is, you know what? God wants more for us than that. We're just trying to influence, manipulate his feelings towards us. But God wants more for us. And it's like with my son. My son wants, doesn't want me to be angry at him. He wants me to be on his side. But here's the thing. As his father, I'm always on his side. And the fact that I'm frustrated with him about this particular behavior is evidence that I'm on his side because I'm concerned about the type of person he grows into. I don't want him to be a 35-year-old walking around whipping people with a blanket. That is not going to end well for him, right? You see, God wants more for you probably than you want for yourself. I know that to be true. I love what Jesus says at the end of this encounter. Jesus says, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, often when, if you're like me and you hear that word saved, what you probably think about is somebody saying a prayer to be forgiven so they can go to heaven after they die, right? If so-and-so saved, it's, it's typically what you think about. But throughout Luke's gospel, this word for saved can also be translated as to be made well. Jesus heals a person of a physical condition. He says, your faith has saved you. Your faith has made you well. It has made you whole. It has healed you. Man, God wants to heal you. God wants to make you whole. God wants to transform you. I love this one, 2 Corinthians. Man, this is powerful stuff right here. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. It says that through the Spirit, we are being transformed into the likeness of Christ. Whoa! That's high ambition right there, and it's a big-time goal. You said yes to Jesus, the Holy Spirit's exploded in you. And God's got a goal. One goal is to make you like Jesus. Whew. That's a whole lot of ambition on God's behalf. I love that part. Through the Spirit, we are being transformed into the likeness of Christ with ever-increasing glory. You see, God wants to do more than forgive you. Now, hear me when I say this. As desperately as we need that, and as good as it is, it doesn't stop there. God also wants to transform you. God wants to make you right. He wants to make you whole. 
So for some of us in this room, I think it's time for us to stop saying we're sorry. And it's time with God's help to start making it right. Do you know what's been made available to you in Jesus? Man, Scripture tells us the same power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power that's at work in you. It's time to stop saying you're sorry. It's time to take that power, put it to work, and make it right. The good news of the gospel is you don't have to keep making the same mistakes. You don't have to keep coming back to that same thing. You can be transformed. You can be made new. What I know about you and I is that every single one of us, no matter where you are in your faith journey, whether you're just getting started or whether you've been in this for a while, every single one of us has a next step to take. We have a next right thing to do. If our goal is Christ, then here's the bottom line. All of you, all of us, we're a piece of work. We are a work in progress. And what I've found is the closer I get to Jesus, the more I realize all of the new ways I need him. It's like when you wear a dark shirt, like a black shirt, the closer you get to light, the more you see the stuff on it, especially if you got kids. It's like you wear this shirt, think you're looking good, you stand next to a light, a little spit up all of them, and you can see it there, right? It's like when I first said yes to Jesus, I had some big, dramatic life changes I had to make. Big ones, obvious ones, right? I'll be honest, I didn't really hurt that much over them. I just knew I needed to change. If I'm going to follow Jesus, shouldn't do that anymore. Okay. But now that I've been following Jesus for a while, the changes aren't as like huge they're not as obvious. They're a bit more subtle, but they sting. It's like my motives. It's the reasons why I do the things that I do. I feel God questioning and challenging, encouraging me in those places too. At the same time, I, I feel like my eyes are constantly being opened to, to what it means to really be a part of this kingdom of God movement, to pledge my allegiance to Jesus, particularly when it comes to issues of justice. My wife and I have been having to ask some serious questions about how we spend our money. The, the companies that we give our money to. The places where we buy our products from. The reality of many of these places are caught up in things like, like human trafficking. Sexual slavery. Slave labor. And we, we get a good deal on some of these products, but somebody's paying the price. It's just not usually us. We started asking serious questions about where we shop and who we buy from. And I'll be honest with you, it'd be a whole lot easier not to think about any of that stuff. I'd rather just not know, but that's not what I signed up for. And when I said yes to Jesus, when I pledged my allegiance to his kingdom, it meant to be about what Jesus is about. And quite frankly, Jesus isn't about those things. I mean, all of us, no matter where we are, there's a next right thing for us to do. There's a next step for us to take. So my question for you is, how are you growing? How are you changing? How are you moving? Remember, this whole scripture takes place on a journey, doesn't it? Jesus is traveling. He's moving from one place to another. You can't follow Jesus and stay where you're at. You're going to be different. You're going to grow. You're going to be changed. What's that look for like for you right now? How are you moving forward? How are you changing? What's the new thing God is beginning to do in your life? And there are a couple of things that we can learn from Zacchaeus about, about how to put this into practice, about how do we respond to the unbelievable grace of God that comes into our life in order to experience transformation. First thing we can learn from Zacchaeus is this, got to go public. Man, right there in front of everybody, Zacchaeus declares, I'm going to make this right. I've been living like a crook. I'm going to make this right. 
Half my stuff is going to the poor. Then I'm going to pay back everybody I wronged four times the amount of what I took. He goes public with this. I mean, he could have kept it between him and Jesus, couldn't he? Hey, come on in, Jesus. I want to talk to you about some stuff. They all don't need to hear about this. James chapter 5 says, tells us to confess our sins one to another. We don't like that though, do we? We'd just much rather keep this between us and God. Let's just keep this quiet between me and you. But if we're being honest, we're doing that so we can still keep a door open, aren't we? We can still do it if we want to. We'll just come back and do that sorry thing again, right? And there's something about voicing it, getting it out in the open, speaking it out loud to other people. It has this power sort of take that control away from us. We begin to break its control over us. It's like with Zacchaeus. And if he goes through the effort of voicing this out loud, of saying what he's going to do, I'm going to give half my stuff away. I'm going to make it right. Says it public, right? What's, what's, the, what's the last thing Zacchaeus is going to do again after this is all over? Steal. He's going to go through all that effort. He's going to go public like that. What's the last thing? He's, he's not going to go back there again. I'm not telling you to go get a billboard, Right? make a commercial, put on TV. No, find somebody you can confide in. It's one of the reasons why we're so passionate about small groups here. To have a group of people who can hold us accountable, help push us forward. So you got to go public. And then here's the second thing we learned from Zacchaeus. You got to head in the opposite direction. Now think about it. Zacchaeus, he was a crook, right? He used to take for himself. But when he experiences the grace of God, what does he begin to do instead? He becomes generous. He heads in the complete opposite direction. You got to move in the opposite direction of whatever it is that's got its hands around your neck. Ephesians chapter four says this, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds and then to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So new life is a matter of taking off the old and putting on the new. It's not just about what you're saying no to anymore. It's about what you're saying yes to. It's about moving. It's about heading in the opposite direction. Zacchaeus didn't need Jesus to tell him what to do. He knew it. I'm not here to tell you what to do. Whatever that thing is, you continually find yourself tripped up about, convicted about, that thing you struggle with, my question for you is, what does it look like for you to move in the opposite direction? Whether it's in your marriage, it's with your work, some sort of destructive habit you've taken up. What does it look like for you to embrace the grace of God in that moment and then to allow him to empower you to head in the opposite direction, to pursue new life? This is really what repentance is all about. Grace. Scripture says grace of God is meant to lead us into repentance. To repent means to turn around, head in the opposite direction, to return back to who you really are. Jesus finishes this. I love what he says to to, to Zacchaeus. Verse 9, he says, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. That phrase carries some weight. Son of Abraham was used to describe an Israelite who is living out of their true identity. Somebody who is being faithful to the call that God had placed on that entire nation to live in covenant relationship with him. 
Zacchaeus hadn't been living like that. He'd been a traitor. He'd been a thief. And now we have Jesus speaking over him who he really is. You want to know what? That's what repentance is all about. Repentance is about allowing Jesus to recreate us into the people who we really are, to call us home. There's this African tribe called the Hemba tribe. And whenever a woman becomes pregnant, she goes out into the woods and she listens for that child's song. The belief is that every single child in this tribe has a unique song. And once she hears it, she goes back to the village and she teaches everybody else this song. When that child is born, that village gathers around that child and they sing its song. And all along that child's life, every, every moment that's significant, when a child first learns how to walk or when they, when they say their first words, the, the village gathers around that child and sings its song to them. When they grow up and become an adult, once again, they sing over this child, that child's song. And there's one other time the village will sing this song. It's when the child's lost its way. When they've messed up. When they've failed. When they've sinned. The village will take that child, place them in the middle, in their midst, and sing that song over that child. Reminding them of who they really are. This is grace. This is repentance. And some of you right now, you're caught up in something, you know it's beneath you. There's a secret you've been carrying for way too long. The invitation for you this morning is to come clean, is to come home, is to embrace grace and allow it to move you in a completely different direction. Y'all pray with me. Jesus, we thank you for your good news. We thank you for loving us the way that we are but we thank you so much for not leaving us that way. I pray for everybody in this room that, Lord, you reveal to us what that next right thing to do is. Show us where to go from here, what it means to be your people, to live in your grace. We love you so much. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.